0: TUC Radio, Time of Useful Consciousness.
1: Hazel Henderson and Edward Goldsmith, visionaries of a new economy in opposition to the global trade agreements. On May 7, 2022, I heard Hazel Henderson in a spirited interview on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour. She was introduced as personal friend and advocate for an economy based on cooperation and sharing. Someone once said, It's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Well, the visionary Hazel Henderson had a remarkable imagination for a green economy of the solar age. And I hope you'll look her up on the Nader Radio Hour archive. So sadly, she died, age 89, only two weeks after the interview. And here's my tribute to her. I met Hazel Henderson in 1993 and recorded her whenever she visited San Francisco. Here's her still totally timely critique of economics.
0: Hazel Henderson was one of the keynote speakers at the International Healthy Cities Conference in San Francisco, California, in December of 1993. She is an economist and author. Her books, Creating Alternative Futures, The Politics of the Solar Age, and Paradigms in Progress, have been translated in many languages, including Dutch and Chinese. Hazel Henderson is one of the directors of the World Watch Institute, and founded the Center for Sustainable Development in St. Augustine, Florida, where she lives. She does her errands by bicycle and Boycott's shopping malls and large department stores. Hazel Henderson. We need
2: to see the world anew. We need to reframe all those debates we see on TV and in the newspaper headlines that lead us to believe that free markets have triumphed, Free trade is always good for everyone. Global competitiveness is the new goal everywhere. Economic efficiency is the top priority. Citizens are now customers. Democracy is equated with markets. Budgets must be balanced. Deficits are out of control. So cuts in jobs must be inevitable. the GNP must continue to grow. So how do we sort through all of these inappropriate half-truths? Well, the first thing is to remember economics is not and never was a science. Economics, as we all know now, is simply a 300-year-old grab bag of unverifiable, unrefutable assumptions. (laughs) And these assumptions are parading as laws. It's extraordinary to me the way economists talk about this law and that law, Say's law, and. Pareto's laws and all of this as if they were equivalent to Newton's laws of motion. I mean, you can get to the moon with Newton's laws of motion. You can't get anywhere with these (laughs) economic assumptions. (laughs) So let's all remember again that economics is simply a profession, like law. And if you think of it, a cost-benefit analysis is not very much different from a brief that a lawyer prepares for a client to put the best possible spin on what the client wants to do, what the project is. Now, the problem is, though, that lawyers are accountable, just like doctors are. But economists are not accountable. And it's an extraordinary thing to realize that today, economists are going around the world prescribing, not for individuals, but for whole societies, and creating the most terrible mayhem and human suffering in their wake. Right now, we have a lot of our old economic textbooks are being peddled around in Eastern European countries, and they're trying to recreate 19th century capitalism. What we need, of course, is a 21st century form of sustainable development. So if we're going to move toward a healthy, sustainable society, we have to first of all correct the economists' obsolete recipes. And of course, the most important one, as I'm sure a lot of you have been talking about, we've got to change the GNP growth formula and correct it. Because this formula for progress, as you know, was adapted in World War II by uh, Britain and the United States uh, in order to increase the war effort. And the whole idea was to maximize war production at the expense of the civilian economy. And so bombs and bullets and tanks are valued very highly in GNP and GDP. Children count for zero. The environment counts for zero. And even infrastructure counts for zero. So you can imagine, with that kind of formula that nobody's looked at since 1945, we are backing into the future looking through the rearview mirror. <laughs> Trying to guide a complex society using GNP and GDP as your compass is a little like trying to fly a Boeing 747 with nothing on the instrument panel except an oil pressure gauge. So here we are and we're still on the old GDP growth formula. And in my state and in many of the cities I travel to around the world, you have to call it the plantation model. This is how it goes. Uh, The Economic Development Commission in the city or the state Uh, goes around the world trying to find some big multinational company to lure in to create jobs. And they they say, come on down to Florida. We have cheap land, cheap labor, low taxes, few labor unions, and um, few environmental regulations. And guess what? We'll also give you a tax holiday. Now, of course, this is simply a recipe for disaster. Because what happens is the company comes in, uses all of those concessions, and increases the environmental and social costs to taxpayers and to everybody else. And then, when they realize that taxes have to go up to clean up the mess, and we have to have more and more public programs to deal with the victims and the drugs and the crime, then the economists tell the politicians, what you need is more economic growth, and you're back around the treadmill again. What we now have to deal with is this model still operating on a global level. And what we have today is this whole thing about, uh, about global uh, competitiveness is simply ending up at, at the end of the line with the new phenomenon called the era of jobless economic growth. And all over the world, uh, the G7 countries, when they met in Tokyo in July, began to talk about jobless economic growth. And of course, it was the whole thrust of the Industrial Revolution was to do more and more and more with fewer and fewer people. So here we are. The idea was first they automated the agricultural sector and everybody moved into factories. Then they automated the factories and we were told everybody would be finding their jobs in the services sector. And now all that's happened is we're automating the services sectors worldwide. And we have to challenge governments because what governments did to patch over This gap, uh, this automation gap, for the last 20 years was basically warfare, workfare, and welfare. And now we can't do that anymore because the old Keynesian stimulation won't work because it's colliding with these uh, ever-rising deficits. So here is our opportunity to get back into the discussion and talk about the reality of the new global game. And what's happened now is as all of the niches in these old marketplaces are filled up and the economy goes goes global, we have to recognize that it too is a global commons. And when a market shifts to a commons, the competitive rules of win-lose don't work anymore. The shift has to be to win-win. And it has to be not leveling that global playing field downward the way the economists would do it, which just means leveling rainforests and trying to homogenize all the cultures in the world. It means raising an ethical floor under the global playing field, where the girder work of national agreements and treaties around ozone, around worker safety, around human rights, all can lift this global floor so that eventually the best companies and the most ethical countries can win rather than losing the way they do today. And so today we have these two failing institutions, national governments and global corporations, and instead what we see happening in the world is a third sector is emerging, the global civic culture. That's us. And we are communicating with each other and what we are finding is that not only are we beginning to build this third force where most social innovation comes from because social innovation never comes from the center, always from the margins. We can all learn from each other and I think that we all know that we can build a win-win world and that in this new global context, all our self-interests are identical. The golden rule was right. It was simply a good statement of systems theory. And Earth ethics now has simply become pragmatic.
1: Thank you. That was my archival program with Hazel Henderson, recorded in San Francisco in December 1993. She was an important critic of industrial age economics and campaigned, along with notables such as ecologist Edward Goldsmith and Ralph Nader, against the emerging trade agreements such as NAFTA and GATT, that later became the WTO. Here's my recording of Edward Goldsmith. This is how I introduced him in 1994.
0: Edward Goldsmith, philosopher and activist from England, is considered one of the best informed and radical thinkers of the environmental movement. The Green Party used his book, The Blueprint for Survival, to formulate the founding document. Edward Goldsmith spoke at a briefing on the impact of the so called free trade agreements like the GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. Edward Goldsmith.
3: We all think that trade is necessary. We think it's normal. Uh, In fact, gross national product, in terms of which we gauge the wealth of a nation, (coughs) is really a summation of all the transactions. It's entirely based on trade. No trade, internal or external, and there's no GNP. And we're supposed to be very, very poor. I think it's in our character, as humans, to see the things we've been brought up with as normal. Our political scientists look at today's political system and they assume this is a normal political system. The fact that it doesn't work, the fact that you can't point to any government in the world that is actually doing its job and helping solve any problem, doesn't seem to affect them, doesn't seem to lead them to question this. Karl Polanyi, that very well-known, very remarkable economic historian who wrote in the 30s and 40s, pointed out to the dismay of the world of economists that the Principles of economics which they had formulated and which they had assumed which they assumed to have universal applicability applied only to industrial man, and that it applied in no way to tribal or traditional man. He could look around in, the, in tribal society, in, in archaic societies of old, and he'd see no sign of homo economicos. And things were not produced or sold. To maximize the uh, uh, the return on any factor of production, i.e., to satisfy any real economic goal, goods was dis- made and distributed on the c- simply to satisfy kinship obligations, and to achieve social prestige. In the case of people like the big men in Melanesia, who give big feasts and acquire prestige in this manner, without accumulating any any capital goods of any kind. Often they're the poorest-looking people in the area. He referred to the ways goods were distributed in traditional societies as reciprocity and redistribution. You give things away, you get them back, you redistribute goods among your community as a means of obtaining social prestige in general. Of course, if you interfere with this process, uh, you get chaos. You get to our type of society. The typical example of reciprocity and redistribution what you find in some of the Pacific Islands near New Zealand, in some of the Pacific Islands, where people live largely off fish, on the atolls, if somebody catches a fish, he gives a feast, and uh, of course, some, when somebody else catches a fish, they'll give, a, they'll also give a feast, and he'll be invited to that feast. So in a sense, he's getting something back. He's using his friends as deep freezes, <laughs> and uh, in fact, uh, that's very much the choice we have today. Do we want friends or deep freezes? because you can't have both, because when the New Zealand government started and handed out refrigerators and deep freezers to people, they stopped giving feasts. You didn't need them anymore. So now you don't have feasts anymore. You eat frozen fish instead of good fresh fish. Your social bonds are destroyed because it was these feasts that maintained social bonds. Society is collapsing as a result with all the obvious consequences. This whole principle, to me, is critical. The goods and the economic activities in general, including trading activities, in a traditional society were not designed to achieve economic goals, but designed to achieve social ends. I quote in my book: this man called I think called Hubbo describes the economic system of a tribe in New Guinea called the Angor, and he points out the object of the agricultural activities is not to produce food, but to produce social organization. Of course, this whole principle is very much. Um, Part of the philosophy of Mahatma Gandhi. In fact, it's uh, Sundarlal Bahugana, whom we all know, regarded as the most basic principle of Gandhi's philosophy, that you had to buy within your village. He himself is a great Chipko activist. I don't know if you know about the Chipko movement. You know, people who stream out of their villages, mainly women, to embrace the trees when the government loggers appear cut the forest down. They know that once the trees go, the soil goes away, the water table sinks. And they no longer have any food to eat or water to drink. Sundar al was is one of the leaders of this movement, for he will only wear clothes that come from his village. He will never accept any clothes of any kind, give him any gift, but if it doesn't come from his village, he won't wear it. You know, when, he, when he's there, he only eats things from his village. He, he's very, very difficult to feed, actually. He doesn't know how he survives. In the Indian village of old, where the farmer uh, produced food, which he uh, gave to the potter, the blacksmith, the barber in exchange for their services. He would, on, by the way, not at a price determined by the market, but at a price established by tradition. Well, he would buy his pots in his village. He'd have his hair cut by the barber, regardless of how useless they were. If there was a completely drunken barber who would sort of chop his ears off every time he had his hair cut, he'd still go to him. And if the potter was also half drunk and made very small pots, so what? Even if you could buy bigger pots elsewhere, this is not important. Importance is not the size of the pots or the ability of the hairdresser. What is important is to maintain these social bonds, which assure the cohesiveness of their community, which provided people with their main wealth. It's a form of wealth whose very existence we ignore. We don't realize that if you take a man from his traditional village, where he lives in in his family, an extended family, and in his community, and all the various associations of which he's part, and you dump him in some distant town, you are depriving him of a form of wealth which it is almost impossible to compensate for. This wealth we ignore. We only realize it when we see the consequences of destroying our own societies. When you see this massive uh, epidemic of delinquency, drug addiction, crime, which can only be interpreted as the symptoms of social and cultural deprivation. The results of destroying your community In the interests of maximizing economic development. Now, it's interesting to see what happens when you start trading. In New Zealand, when they started developing and setting things on the market, they cashed in all their whales. The first people to go there were whalers, the first white people. So we cashed in the whole whale, all the whales. When there were no whales, they cashed in all the seals. When there were no seals, they found that the wonderful tree called the Kairi tree, there are three million acres of these trees, they're wonderful like your redwoods. They cashed that lot in. When they cashed all that in, they looked around. They found there were some wonderful scallop beds in the in the Marlborough Sounds between the two islands. They cashed that in. Then they found there some fantastic, fantastic resource of uh, of uh, crayfish the Chatham Islands. They cashed that in a few years. There they found they, they put down 70. They burned all that trees down and put down 70 million sheep, and that wiped out the soil. So they cashed in the soil as well. Now this process could only go on if it goes on until there's nothing left of the island, until the whole place is just a desert for a whole lot of starving people. This is not taken into account by the people who advocate the endless expansion of the market. In fact, it's quite evident that if you want to preserve things, you've got to keep them out of the market system. In New Zealand, you have national parks. What's the object of a national park? It's to keep things out of the market system. In Tanzania, the market is broken down. Why? Because there's no money to repair the roads, so they can't export their food anymore. This is Everybody would say the poor people. They must be very poor. They've got no more money, they can't export their food. But if you can't export your food, something wonderful happens. You can eat your food instead, which they haven't done for 30 years. <laughs> so now, for the first time, for 30 years, they're eating their food. They're growing fat in Tanzania. Well, I think I'm finishing off now. All I'm going to say here is that we need to reverse this process. Free trade doesn't really exist in any case because we know that the market for any single commodity is controlled by a very limited number of corporations. And when we decree that trade is going to be free, we are actually allowing the corporations that control the market in the various commodities to do what the hell they like. We are actually transforming the world into a free trade zone of the type that exists around the airports of many third world countries. areas, I don't know if you've seen them, where they solicit they beg, they ask industrialists to settle down, to, bake, to make things out, put up their factories, and they offer them the cheapest possible labor, no labor legislation, no pollution legislation, nothing at all, uh, tax holidays, they can do what the hell they like. All social, ecological, human, moral considerations are mercilessly and systematically subordinated to the short-term interests of the corporations involved. Now, we are transforming today with the GATT and other free trade arrangements. We are transforming the world into a free trade zone of this type. And if we're going to survive on this planet for more than a few decades, by no means certain of climate change, etc., we've got to do exactly the opposite. We've got to subordinate equally ruthlessly and equally systematically short-term economic interests to social, ecological, and climatic considerations. To do this means reverting to the small market. It means reverting to, to, to a society based on the community in which our economic activities are conducted on a very much smaller scale, catering for local markets, very much as people once did before. I don't think we have any alternative for this. We cannot go back to the past, but we must certainly seek our inspiration from the past for, because of 95% of our tendency of this planet People live just this way. And that must be the only way to live. Thank you.
0: Edward Goldsmith recorded at a briefing on the impact of GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade. In January of 1994, he returned to San Francisco. And I talked to him about the recent conclusion of the Uruguay Round of GATT. Since the talk you just heard was given, the binding final document of GATT was produced. After the signing ceremony in Morocco in April 1994, the over 100 members to the GATT are now facing the country-by-country ratification process. I asked Edward Goldsmith to comment on the promises the GATT is making.
3: The justification for the GATT is it will increase world trade, and that by increasing world trade, we'll increase economic growth, and that in this way we will be able to fight poverty and fight unemployment. This is a myth, it's more than a myth, it's a lie. It's a gigantic lie, a huge deceit. Now, it's perfectly simple. Since 1950, world trade has increased 11 times. I repeat, 11 times. What has that done for poverty, for jobs? (laughs) Poverty has increased massively throughout the third world and in countries like America and in Europe too. Unemployment has never been higher. Growth, national product during that period has increased five times, five hundred percent. I've got increases, gross national product, by an extra percent every year, or increases world trade. You know, by a few percent. What are they going to do for us? What's the point of increasing world trade by ten percent when, you multiplied it by by one thousand one hundred percent, it's done no more than increase poverty and unemployment. It's a complete myth based on hot air. The GATT is above all, as it has been described, a charter of rights for the multinational corporations. They control the bulk of world trade already. Three or four hundred transnational corporations control about sixty or seventy percent of world trade. And by removing all the barriers, all the constraints on their operations, all the barriers to their expansion, they're going to be able to control maybe so eighty or ninety percent of world trade. That's all. We're handing the world on a platter to the multinational corporations. With the GATT, we're going to turn the world into one vast free trade zone in which everything goes, in which there are no labor controls, which there's no pollution control, which there'll be tax holidays, in which corporations can do what they like. You can see it already. Now, you wouldn't believe it. The Department of Trade and Industry in England has produced a beautiful, shiny brochure called Invest in Britain. It's addressed to foreign industrialists. It says, invest in Britain, we have the cheapest labor in Europe. Imagine boasting about the fact that the English people are the poorest in Europe. Number two, they say, invest in Britain, because we'll guarantee that there'll be no (coughs) new laws, no new environmental or social laws, which will increase the cost of your industrial enterprises. Invest in Britain, because you don't have to have unionized labor. You can deploy any labor you like. In other words, we are telling foreign industrialists to invest in Britain because Britain has already been transformed into a free trade zone, like, just like those zones around the airports in third world countries, where industrialists can do what the hell they like. We're reversing all the efforts by people who've tried to control corporations, who've tried to establish norms and guidelines, and uh, who've tried to have social laws to protect workers, uh, environmental laws to protect the environment, all that is being reversed in one fell sweep. The corporations have gone too far. They could probably get away with controlling 50 or 60 percent of world trade. They're not going to get away with trying to control 80 or 90 percent of it. They're just not going to get away. There's going to be civil wars everywhere. You're already seeing the civil war in, in Mexico. You've already seen the election in Canada, where the Conservative Party, which completely controlled the company, has been virtually wiped out because they have been associated more than anything else with the NAFTA. And all the unemployment, present unemployment and misery in Canada is blamed on NAFTA. Yeah, I think you're going to have revolutions and civil wars just about everywhere in the world, because Uganda is going to cause such unbelievable misery that people are going to react.
1: You heard Edward, a.k.a. Teddy Goldsmith, and before him, Hazel Henderson, and their 1993-94 critique of the rules of global trade under GATT, the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, that later became the WTO, the infamous World Trade Organization. This rebroadcast from the TUC Radio Archives is in honor of the legacy of Hazel Henderson, who died on May 22nd of this year and in honor of Edward Goldsmith, who died in August 2009. Their work continues with us. You can hear this program again for free on TUC Radio's website, tucradio.org. My name is Maria Gelauden. Thank you for listening.